That's the song we sang most frequently. I think we sang it five times in 2023, which makes it the most frequently sung song out of the Trinity Psalter hymnal for our congregation. Shall we come to the Lord in a prayer for illumination? Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you do speak to us and that we can sing of these things and that you can, or that we can know, Lord, that through your word you work faith in our hearts and you convict and convince us of our need of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would again do that now as we open your word. Speak to us, O Lord, that we may indeed stand in awe of your glory and your grace and may renew our commitment to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter. We're going to read from verse 13 of chapter 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. We're doing that in light of what it is that we confess in Lord's Day 25 concerning uh, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Lord's Day 25 deals predominantly with the sacraments, but it also addresses the work of the Holy Spirit in working faith in our hearts by the Holy Gospel, by the preaching of the Gospel. And we have something of that also in First Peter, verse 13 of chapter 1 to verse 25. It's page 1203, 1203 in your pew Bibles. And let's hear together this word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Then let's turn in our forms and prayers books or our Trinity Psalter hymnals to Lord's Day 25 so that we can together recite the answers to these four questions. Remember where we've come from, especially in Lord's Days 23 and 24, which deal with the question of justification, of our being righteous in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Then in verse, or sorry, in question 65, we are asked this. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. And what are the sacraments? Sacraments are visible holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I think that most of us, given the opportunity or the option, would want, would be pleased to witness some kind of miracle. We think about those people that lived in Jesus' day and those disciples that got to follow Jesus around and they got to see amazing things. They got to see people that were lame, suddenly able to walk. People that were blind, suddenly able to see. They were even able to see people that died, raised to new life. Wouldn't that be amazing to be able to witness a miracle like that? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to be able to say to people? In fact, wouldn't that be something that we would want to use as an evangelistic tool? That we could say to people, look at what God did. Look at how powerful and how great our God is. He raised this person from the dead. He gave this person new life. Surely that would convict and convince people about how great and glorious our God is. If they could see a miracle, even our own faith, our own trust in the Lord would be built up, wouldn't it? It would be so encouraged if we could see some kind of miraculous sign from God. Sometimes we want that, don't we? You even pray about it. We say, Lord, give us a sign. Show us something to, to encourage our hearts in this dark trial we're going through. Give us a sign that you are the powerful, life-giving God. We want miracles. We'd love to have a miracle. But sometimes we don't see the miracles that are around us. Miracles that are glorious and powerful, that are testimonies of God's presence at work within us. We don't see the miracles that are, to us, not miracles. They're just ordinary. 
And we're not talking now about the sunrise each morning or the sunset each day. Those might seem to us like miracles. They're beautiful moments. There are these glorious moments. We're not even talking about a new life that the Lord gives to us that we get to hold in our arms, that precious new life that is a miracle of life. Those things are indeed wonderful, glorious displays of God's power, ordinary also in their own way, but also miracles in their own way. Now, the ordinary miracle that we get so used to, especially as a multi-generational covenant community, is the miracle of faith, a miracle of equal power and glory as the very beginning of life itself when God said, let there be light, and light sprang into being. That powerful display of God's goodness and grace that is faith in our hearts is no less impressive than that power of God at the very beginning of time. But we don't always see it that way. We don't always see faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God as a miracle. We more often see it as ordinary because my parents believe and my grandparents believe and my great-grandparents believe and all my friends believe and, and it's so ordinary. But it is hardly ordinary. It is for always and ever a glorious, powerful display, a miracle of God's grace. That's what Lord's Day 25 shows us. That's what the Word of God shows us. When we think about where this faith that we profess comes from. It's such a very important question, by the way, to ask that. Where does this faith come from? The catechism has been concerned with this and with other things. There are really two questions that have dominated Lord's Day 7 to Lord's Day 24. All of this study of the catechism that we've had in these past months have been really focused on two things. The first is who is God, the triune God. Lord's Day 8, you'll remember, introduces us to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then says, here's who God is, and here's what he's done, and holds before us the glorious goodness of our God and says, isn't he amazing? But the other thing that the the catechism's been concerned with is our believing in this triune God. Lord's Day 7 starts with the question about faith, and Lord's Day 23 takes it up again, and 24, and now 25. This is God, says the catechism. This is who your God is. Do you believe in him? Do you know him? And it's so important that you do because only people who have faith, only people who have genuine faith. Remember, Lord's Day 7 distinguishes between false and true faith. There are people who have false faith, who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Indeed, we might say that all humanity has faith. Everybody believes in something. But true faith is a faith in Jesus Christ, a faith in his saving work, a a faith that acknowledges our sin and acknowledges his saving power and says that saving power is also for me. That's the genuine faith of Lord's Day 7. And only people who have that faith are genuinely saved. That's also true in terms of Lord's Day 23, isn't it? Only people who believe in Jesus Christ are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and so inherit eternal life which means it is of absolutely eternal significance. It is of the greatest importance. It is the most vital question you can answer ever in your life. Whether you're the youngest in the congregation today or the eldest, the greatest, most important question that needs to be answered by all of us 
is do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have faith? Are you united to this Savior? Is His work for you? Is His saving power yours? Are you redeemed in Christ? Despite what countless funerals every year tell us, we are not saved by how good we are, but only by how good He is. And His love flows through us through the medium of faith. And so do you have faith? That's a question we must all wrestle with. And we must wrestle with it not only in terms of our own individual lives, but in terms of our community's life. Think about our society. Think about our world. Think about the world that's been, the Canada that's been in 2023, and realize just how much our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends and family that are unbelieving, how much they need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. What does our country need more than anything else? It needs a revival of the gospel. It needs people to be convicted of their sin, calling out to Christ for faith, giving their lives to the Lord. You think of the mess of our society, the moral mess, the political mess. You think of the economic mess. You think of all of the problems that our society is facing. The answer is found in faith in Jesus Christ. We know that as God's people. And we want all men to come to that faith. But how do we, how do we accomplish that? How do we... How do we get there? there? How do we see our neighbors converted and convicted? How do we see them come to faith in Jesus Christ? And not just our neighbors and our co-workers, but what about our own family? What about our own friends? What about our own children? What about our own covenant youth? Remember, we're all born in sin. We all need to come and make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ. How can we ensure that our children come to know faith in Jesus Christ in a meaningful way? How can we ensure Can we even ensure that they genuinely profess faith in Jesus Christ? How do we bring them to see the power of God in Him? How do we bring people to know Jesus Christ? In the history of the church, this this obviously has been a question that has dominated the the ministry of the church. This has been a question that, that congregations have asked throughout their history because, again, they all want to see people come to faith. They know how, pri- how important it is that everybody believe. And so they have constantly asked and wrestled with the question of how do we bring people to faith? And there are really two answers that are genuinely given in the history of the church. Obviously, there's various versions of these answers, but there are two answers essentially that are given in the history of the church. There are those who have argued that man, by the exercise of his will, chooses to believe that the mechanism for faith is the choice of a believer or of an individual themselves. My heart, by nature, has no faith in it. I can plant faith in it by exercising my will. And that being the case, the responsibility of the church and of the church community is to present to unbelievers the clear and compelling good news of the gospel done in such a convicting way, such a powerful display, such a gripping sort of emotional, intellectual, convincing presentation that everyone who hears it will be convinced of the wisdom of walking in the faith and will make the choice to believe. Another way to put that is to say that the world, the church in our day, many in the church in our day, 
view the members or the, the attendants at worship as consumers. You are all here to get something, to buy something, to make a choice. Just like over Christmas, we go to the malls, we go to the store, we touch this, we look at that, we make a decision. I'm going to buy this as the gift for the person whose name I have this year in our family, gift giving. You are the consumer. The church is the sales force. And it's the job of the sales force to ensure you get the best pitch possible so that you can buy, believe in, Jesus Christ. That explains why so many evangelical and mainline churches are exactly the way they are. They pitch the gospel to a consumer audience. That's one of the ways in which faith is seen as being worked in the hearts of men. On the extreme other side of the counter, however, is those who, uh, who emphasize so profoundly the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, who say that there, there is no possible way that anyone can convert anyone else. There, there is only God's power to bring people to faith, there's nothing we can do as parents. There's nothing we can do as church community. It's, it's all of God's electing power. It's all of His decision. Some people come to faith. Some people don't. What can you do? It's a mystery. And it's so mysterious that really no one can ever really know that they're saved. And they certainly can't expect to be saved. Not even if they can say something about Jesus. Not even if they can claim to, to want to worship Jesus, I'm not really sure that you're saved because you haven't had that powerful spiritual experience. No matter how often you've heard the word, no matter how often you've heard the call to faith, unless you have this obvious and objectively discernible experience of the Holy Spirit's power at work in your life, I'm fairly certain you're not saved. We start on that premise. The premise is everybody who comes to church is not saved and occasionally one or two get saved. That's the other approach to piety. And while um, neither of them may seem appealing to us, the fact is both of them have a great deal of appeal. For on the one hand, thinking like that, like, like those who promote the use of free will, Thinking like that allows us to, to be free of God's sovereign control. That's our problem as creatures. That's our problem as sinners. We don't like the fact that God is sovereign and that we are dependent. We want to be autonomous. We want to be free. That is at the heart of all of our sinfulness is freedom from God. And we like the idea that the choice to be saved is up to me. Think about, for example, young people, teenagers, and even of their parents, spare a thought for their parents as they try to navigate through the immorality of our age, and as they see their young sons, their young daughters living a profligate lifestyle, living a wild and disobedient, immoral lifestyle, and what do we do? What do we say? Well, well, just give them a minute. Let them sow their wild oats. They'll come around. They'll, they'll decide in the end to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's sort of the thinking that this allows us to have. We, we can tell ourselves, well, they'll come around. They'll, they'll decide to believe eventually. And maybe that's even the condition we're in right now. We might be a person in church who says, I don't really want to give my life to the Lord. Not today. But I'll give my life to the Lord when I have to. When I get a little older and settle down, then I will choose to believe in Jesus Christ. As though it's up to me. As though it's my decision. As though it's a a switch I can flip. It's a box I can tick. I can decide when I want to be a Christian. On the other hand, thinking that is so hyper-spiritual also allows us to be free of the claim of God and His sovereign will. After all, hyper-spirituality allows us to lay the fault for our unbelief at the feet of Jesus Christ. I have a brother-in-law whose neighbor is this way and who lives a, an immoral, wicked lifestyle and yet goes to church every Sunday. My brother-in-law said to him at some point, how can you square this, going to church and being so wicked? And he says, but I'm not saved yet. God hasn't saved me yet. As soon as God saves me, all of this goes away. As though it's God's fault. God hasn't saved me yet. It's not my fault. I want to be a Christian, but he hasn't made me one yet. And therefore, I am free. Free to do whatever I want. Do you see, both approaches essentially allow us to be free of God's claim. But our confession of faith does not allow us either position. Our confession of faith, which echoes the word of God, teaches us that our coming to faith is most certainly a work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense given all that we've studied already in the catechism. We know that we are dead in our sin and that because we're dead in our sin, our will is wrapped up in rebellion against God. And for that reason, we will forever and always choose to rebel against God. Not that we'll choose to be as wicked as possible. We don't believe in absolute depravity. But we do know that all of us, every child born into this congregation, every child born into our families and friends, is a child born with such a heart that they will never believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Lord does something to them. Only the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit can draw sinners out of the grave of sin into the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We know that from Jesus' words to John, or to Nicodemus rather. We know that from the Apostle Paul's words when he talks about the power of God unto salvation. The preaching of the word is the power of God unto salvation. We know that from Paul's words in Ephesians 2. Those words that talk about how we were born in sin and that we were dead. But it's all of God's grace that we are saved so that no man may boast. Well, the word of God is clear on this. Only God can lift us out of the death that we have entered into by our sin. But our confession also reminds us that the Spirit uses a means to work this faith in our hearts. He uses the preaching of the word, and he uses the sacrament. Now, we're going to focus for a moment on the preaching of the Word, although we're not going to say everything there can be about the preaching of the Word. Much can be said about what is preaching and what is not preaching, what the Word of God expects for the preaching of the Word to be. We'll deal with more of that when we come to the keys of the kingdom. And we ought to recognize, not only is there much that we can say about the preaching of the Word itself, but we ought to recognize that 
that when the gospel goes out and is faithfully proclaimed, then all who hear it are genuinely and unfeignedly called by God to repentance and faith with the promise that if they answer the call, they will be received in Christ unto eternal life. God genuinely says to everyone who hears the gospel, if you repent and believe, you will be saved. That is true of what God says to all men. All receive the call to faith. But what is the miracle of God's grace is though all receive the call, only those who answer it, only those who by the Holy Spirit's presence answer it, for he alone can make us to believe in Jesus Christ. Through the preaching of the word, through the ministry of his word, the spirit of Christ enters into our hearts so that as we hear the gospel proclaimed, as we hear the truth of Jesus Christ, we begin to experience in our hearts a stirring, a sense of our desperate need of this Savior, our our dependence upon his grace and our desire to live in service to him. And we in our spirits reach out and lay hold of this grace. We cry out to God for mercy and claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we do it only because the Spirit of God through the preaching of the word works that faith in our hearts. We don't know how, we don't know where and when. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and our children that we may do them so that when the word calls us to faith, then we must answer that call by faith. And when we do, we must give glory to God, for it is he who has done this. So that in this way, you might say, in this balanced way, in this twofold way of the catechism's teaching, all excuses are removed and all comfort for God's people remains. Those who would claim that the Spirit of Christ has not come upon them need only be reminded of the Spirit's use of the Word in working faith in our lives and to be encouraged to answer the call for the Lord is genuinely calling them to faith. And those who would think that they can come to faith later, at a more convenient time, need only be reminded that it is the Spirit alone who is able to work faith in their hearts and that they should not despise the living Word of God. Indeed, the Scripture says, Today, if you hear His voice, answer Him. Not tomorrow. Don't put it off. Trust in Him. And indeed, all of us who take the gospel genuinely to heart, who believe and rest in the promise of God, may know this, that though there is much wanting in our spiritual lives, in our knowledge of God, even in our faith in Jesus Christ, know this, you who believe, as surely as you trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ has begun a good work in you that he will bring to its completion in eternity. He has worked a miracle of life in your heart. And stand amazed, therefore. Be overwhelmed, therefore. Be awed, therefore, at what God does through the simple, 
ordinary preaching of the word. He works a faith in our hearts that is a powerful new life so that we might be united to Christ and might walk each day with him. Indeed, it is the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit, or rather of our God, of our Father in heaven, that is placed before us in the second question and answer of this Lord's Day. Not only does the Holy Spirit work new life, a miraculous new life in us, our Heavenly Father sustains that new life by the miracle of His grace. The word proclaimed is clear. All who trust in the Lord are saved. Yet we all know, and I trust even experience, the devil's whispers, the failings of our own brokenness, even the intangibility of the very word of God makes it difficult for us to truly know that we are saved and will cause us so frequently to doubt. Is it truly for me, Lord, we want to know? What about all of those wicked acts of rebellion? What about my persistent struggles? I stumble daily. What about my lack of passion? What about my lack of conviction? The devil, the world, and even our own flesh know how to push the buttons of our hearts and minds so that we doubt in the quiet of our own spirits, in the silence of our own bedrooms. We wonder, am I genuinely saved? In battling these doubts, however, we have sufficient weapons on hand to win the fight. We have, of course, the word of God again and again, coming to church to hear again the call of the gospel, the call to faith in Jesus Christ with the assurance that if we answer that call, the Lord will receive us. As many as believe and confess in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, says the scriptures. So trust the word, answer the word, call upon Jesus Christ, whether in private devotions, in Bible study, or in worship, every time we are brought to the foot of the cross, let us answer the call by faith. And even by prayer, even by our own prayer life, we can fight the good fight of the faith, pleading with the Lord for his care in this battle against uncertainty and doubt. Think about what Paul says about the full armor of God and how each piece is to be put on by prayer. We need to spend more time in prayer. If we want to know the peace that passes understanding, we ought to spend time in prayer each day before the face of God. When we struggle, let's find ourselves quickly crying out to God in Jesus Christ. But in the terms of Lord's Day 25, the most significant weapon we have in our battle against uncertainty are the sacraments. Now, the church's teaching on the sacraments has not always been the most helpful or even the most faithful to the Word of God. There's a reason why we have to ask in question and answer 68, how many sacraments are there? You say, well, that's an easy question to answer, isn't it? Except that the church at one time taught that there were seven. But even if we limit ourselves to these two historic sacraments, we can even see in them that there can be a great deal of confusion and debate about what they mean, about what it signifies for us, about who is the recipients of these sacraments. Consider the various positions in the Christian church. Consider that some teach that the sacraments accomplish what they promise by their very administration. There are those that teach in the church today that baptism saves, that the Lord's Supper saves just by your receiving it. 
If you've been baptized, you are saved. If you've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, you are saved because you received it and for no other reason. Then there's the opposite position. There are those who argue that baptism and the Lord's Supper are really just mental exercises. They are not meaningful and objective realities. They are just ways to stir up our minds, to make us think about Jesus. They don't really make us think, uh, uh, or they really don't give to us anything except the, the prompt to think about what Jesus has done. Even in our own reformed landscape, there are nuances and distinctions between church federations and denominations, with each one implying or suggesting a slightly different understanding of one or both sacraments. The net result being we can get rather confused about the sacraments and about their place within our lives, which is exactly the opposite of what God intends them for. You see how the devil works. You see how the devil wants us to be arguing and debating and fighting so that we're not rejoicing. We're not enjoying and being encouraged by the sacraments, which is why God's given them to us. The sacraments are given by our Heavenly Father so that by our use of them, He will make more clear the promise of the gospel and seal that promise to our hearts. It's a gracious act of God to give us these sacraments. He doesn't need to give them to us. When he says to us through his word, all who believe in me will be saved, he says enough, but he knows that we're weak, so he says, let me give you a tangible expression of that word so that you might know that it is genuinely yours. God graciously gives us these sacraments because he's a kind, tender, and loving father. Now note, these sacraments don't produce faith in the hearts of anyone. They don't produce faith. They confirm faith. The preaching of the word produces faith. The sacraments confirm, support, encourage, understand more clearly the gospel message. And they are more than just a mental exercise. They seal that promise to us. They assure us, for you, this promise is yes and amen. They are intended to encourage our hearts, to inspire our spirits, to equip our minds to live in service to the Lord. And this understanding of the sacraments ought to increase our our sense of privilege and the profound comfort that they are. The gospel is signified, pictured, and presented to us in these things. And that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is held up for us to see every time we have a baptism, every time we have the Lord's Supper. We get to be reminded of the great love of God in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of our King upon the cross, the saving power of His love. The gospel is held before our eyes and we are called to see it, to rest in it, and to know it is ours in a personal way. Our name is spoken at baptism. Our hands receive the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. The Lord says it's for you. I love you. I have redeemed you. I am blessing you. So that taken together, the sacraments 
amplify the glorious good news of the gospel for us. The word of God is made not only clear in the elements of the sacraments, but made tangible. It's not just hear what God's saying to you. Feel it. See it. Smell it. Taste it. This is God's grace to you. And it is not if you're good enough, you'll be saved. But rather, see what God has done in Jesus Christ that you might be saved. And that word of promise is branded upon our souls so that we might leave each service encouraged, equipped, enabled, comforted. Indeed, the sacraments, you see, provide daily comfort to all of God's people as they navigate this bruising and broken world. As we leave this place and stumble again in our daily lives, as we leave this place and lay upon our pillows and wonder about what it is that makes us confident in the Lord, then we are told by the word of God, indeed by the very promises of God in his sacraments, that it is the love of God in Jesus Christ that claims us. Now, we might be tempted to invest too much in the sacraments and so avoid the demand of a life lived in humble submission to the Lord. Don't miss that. We can believe, well, I'm baptized. I can do whatever I want because I'm going to heaven. I got baptized. That is not what baptism teaches. We can be tempted to invest too little in the sacraments and to avoid, therefore, the demand that they place upon us to live in humble submission before the Lord. We can say, well, the Lord's Supper is not. It's just a mental exercise, isn't it? There's no real consequence to our participation in the Supper of our Lord. Oh no, the Supper places upon you a great obligation to give your life in gratitude to the Lord. And we cut through these dual temptations when we remember that our Heavenly Father gives to us these sacraments in order to lift us, in order to encourage us in our faith, in order to tell to each and every who believe in His Son, our Savior, the promise is for you, the grace is for you, the life is for you. This is the comfort that the Lord bestows upon us And this is the call that he issues into our lives each time we witness the sacrament to rest in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's how the catechism ends in our study of it in question answer 67. We are reminded that the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit miraculously works saving faith in our hearts by his power Our Heavenly Father graciously and miraculously gives to us these blessed sacraments to encourage our faith, our faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, it's not easy always to keep our focus on that Savior. Let's acknowledge that. Let's at least admit that. If doubt and uncertainty are a problem, so too is apathy and complacency. In a multi-generational congregation such as ours, we think it's just so ordinary. Everybody's a Christian. It's the most basic thing we do. We don't even have to think about it. It's just who we are. It's part of our identity. It's part of our culture. And as a result, we just coast through our spiritual 
life. We go through the motions. We are never zealously, passionately rooted and joyful in Jesus Christ. This has always been the concern of the Christian church. It's clear from the New Testament scriptures that the devil comes very quickly to distract the vision of the congregation. Don't rest in the saving work of Jesus Christ. We saw that in our study of the book of Galatians. Think about Christ's own words to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Calling them to their first love. Calling them to passionate commitment to Him. If our human nature instinctively wants to be in control and to be free of God, then it also wants to be able to have its cake and eat it too. We want to be able to say, fine, I'm saved, but I'm free to do whatever I want. And the blame for this mentality is often laid at the feet of the doctrines we hold dear. Those doctrines that promote or encourage our comfort, our trust in the preserving grace of God, His electing love. We're told that these doctrines promote or encourage apathy and foolish thinking and godless living. Even though nowhere in any systematic theology textbook or confessional statement of our churches will you ever find anyone saying, sin with abandon, you're saved no matter what. In fact, you will always hear the theologians and teachers of the church saying the exact opposite. Precisely because you're redeemed, you must give your life in humble, some humble service to the Lord. The problem, you see, is not with what we believe, but with what our enemies do with that teaching. This is a challenge that is especially related to the sacrament of baptism. What does it mean to be baptized? Does it mean that we're saved? If it doesn't, what's the point? If all that baptism tells us is that we're sinners in need of a Savior, then how does that distinguish us as God's people from any other human being alive? Everyone is a sinner in need of a Savior. Just not everybody's told it in an official ceremony at church. But surely, therefore, baptism must be saying more to us, more than just that we need a Savior. And if baptism says that the Savior is ours, well, then how do we make sense of the call to faith? I mean, clearly, babies do not show evidence of faith, except for maybe John the Baptist leaping in Elizabeth's womb. So, If faith is a prerequisite for the encouraging word of baptism, why do we baptize babies? And truth be told, we can ask similar questions when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Why do we allow only professing members to participate? Are we implying by this that there are some in the church that are saved and others that are not? And if they are not, why aren't they allowed to come to the Lord's Supper? Indeed, we can get turned around and inside out in all of these debates. And they're good debates and there's good arguments to be had. Indeed, the Catechism will answer some of these questions for us in the following Lord's Days. But what these debates must never prevent us from doing is seeing the substance of what we confess in the Word of God preached and in the sacraments presented. For both the Word of God and the sacraments must forever and always do this for us. They must focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation. That every time we come to church, our one expectation must be this, 
that we're going to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in seeing him, are going to be called again to faith in him, to faith that expresses itself in service and in gratitude to the Lord. This is what we need to have, or this is how we need to be encouraged daily. We need to be reminded daily that Christ is the center of our being, the center of our world, the sovereign of our nation, the sovereign of our lives. We are to be held before the face of God each Lord's Day, reminded that only in Him do we find security, only in Him do we find sufficiency, only in Him do we find the sacrifice necessary for our sins. That's what we forget. That's what we lose sight of. We lose sight of our desperate need of this Savior. We forget in the busyness of life, in the activities of life, that we're sinners who only have hope in a Savior that is Jesus Christ. Which is why every week, every week, 52 times a year, we have to come back into the house of the Lord to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. The word of God, when faithfully preached, will always portray before us Jesus Christ in him crucified. The water of baptism is a reminder of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The bread of Je- the, the supper is the broken body. The wine is the shed blood. Jesus Christ is placed before us every Lord's Day again. Precisely because we forget. And we get off of that focus and we get distracted by this world, and we get turned around by the issues of this life, and we think to ourselves that these are the important things until we come again into the house of God. And before us is portrayed Jesus Christ in him crucified. And the call of the gospel goes forth. Repent and believe. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And every time we answer that that faith, or that call. Every time we give ourselves again to the Lord in gratitude for his grace in Jesus Christ, that miracle of God's saving work is again displayed. If we want to see a miracle, if we want to see a sign from God, if we want to see God do amazing things, then come to church because the Lord works a miracle here every Lord's Day. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, your power is beyond our ability to comprehend. How you can take the darkened hearts that live within our chests and turn them into the bright light of faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. And then you speak to us such tender words in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. You hold before us each and every Lord's Day the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord, we pray, help us to come each Lord's Day eager to taste and see that you are good, eager to feast upon your grace, and eager, Lord, to experience the miracle of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.